Amen, amen. Good morning, church family. Uh, it's good to be back with you to study the Word of God together this week. Um, hey, so we are in the middle of the series, uh, we're calling Everyday Mission, uh, Living Life with Urgency and Intention. Uh, what we're talking about is the importance We're going to get into this a lot today, but talking about the importance of your own personal ministry, not just our ministry as a church family in this community, but your personal ministry to those who live around us. Um, And so I know that this message has spoken to some of you because some of you have actually talked with me and and let me know about engagements that you're trying to have, conversations that you're trying to have with those around you, which is so super cool. That's why we study these things, asking God to grow us from where we are to where he wants us to be. And so if you remember back, if you've been here the last two weeks, week one, we talked about identifying that the first step to this whole process of, of engaging other people is we've got to identify people around us uh, who are in need of the gospel. And once, once you see who they are, you need to begin to invest in them. That was week two. Spend time with them. And today we're going to look at the third word that's going to wrap things up, and it's the word invite. Invite. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be, verse 14. Turn, click, poke your way to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read just three verses today, so that's pretty good. Verses 14 through 16. All right. The word of the Lord says this, You are the light of the world. These are the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world. Cities situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather... On a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you uh, for this word, these words, God, this... um, these words from Jesus to his disciples, God, I pray that uh, though spoken 2,000 years ago, that they would fall real on our ears today. And God, that uh, over the next... um, Whatever time we spend together studying this, God, that you would uh, just implant these words in our own hearts, God, so that we leave this place different. Uh, God, just as his disciples walked away with a new challenge and and marching orders, God, so may we do that today. God, we ask you, as always, to teach us to know more about who you are and uh, to be with us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this text, Matthew chapter 5, falls in the midst, like if you have one of those red letter Bibles, uh, I have one of those, that's what I use. And so like chapter 5, 6, 7 is all red letters. And it's because it's this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we call it. Jesus didn't call it that. Um, but this is a, probably a collection of Jesus' teaching, or it is one actual teaching in itself, but that, that was given and addressed to his followers, And in just these three verses that we looked at, verses 14 through 16, um, Jesus mentions three analogies that are so important for us to grasp in, in, in regards to who we are as his followers. Okay, so here's the first analogy. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Jesus clearly wants his disciples to understand that the role that they play in the world is ridiculously important. I'm going to ask you a question that I asked the first service, and they were slow to answer but it was a little bit rainy, so maybe they were just sleepy. Are lights important to you? Okay, thank you. All right, there we go. So yes, super important. Like, yes, we want lights. We're we're used to electricity. We're used to these things. And so when Jesus says you are the light 
of the world. He was helping them see that they play a very important role. Though electricity didn't exist 2,000 years ago, light did. And so it was an important part. So within this statement, there are two major assumptions within this statement. The first one deals with urgency. So I want to help you see this. Urgency. Um, man, I don't know. I look around at the world around me, and um, it's dark. Uh, it's why a lot of people ask, hey, did you see on the news? The answer is always no to that. Um, I have trouble watching the news because the world is so dark around us. And to, to, to be reminded of that darkness all the time, like it's not getting brighter. You need to know that. Like the world around us is getting darker, which means is light more important or less important? It's becoming more important. And so when we look around the world and it's dark, we have two responses that we can have to that. To recognize the depth of the darkness around us, we can totally ignore it. These are the wrong responses. We're going to get to the right one is urgency. Okay, hang on. Two wrong responses. One is we can ignore it, or the other is we can feel overwhelmed by it. And most of us probably resonate with one of those. Uh, my daughter, I want to tell you a story about her um, to help you understand the ignoring part. So um, we talk to our kids a lot about impacting their friends and telling their friends about Jesus. And uh, there was a point where Elsie Jo was just, I don't remember what age she was. I think it was just last year. So she's starting to get to a little bit deeper thinking. And not just hearing what I say and going, okay, but like thinking through why I say things. And one of the things I told her was, I said, I was telling her one night, like, baby, this is something you could talk to your friends about. You could talk to your friends about Jesus at school. And I never forget her answer. She said, Daddy, all of my friends at school are already Christians. Everybody at our school knows about Jesus. And I was like, in this moment, I'm wrestling with what does a good dad do? Right, Because what I'm witnessing in my daughter is an innocence that's beautiful. That she's seeing the world like as this bright and happy place that looks more like a Trolls movie than reality. But I also feel like in this moment that it's my job as a dad, as a Christian dad, to pull back the curtain. Not all the way. I'm not going to tell her about how dark the world really is. But I do need her to realize that, baby, and I told her, I said, it's not the case. I said, there are kids in your class who don't go to church, who have never been to church, and they don't know what Jesus did on the cross for them. And you can tell them about that. Now, she didn't believe me at first, because that's what kids do. But she went to school, and within a few weeks, she told me, she said, Daddy, there's this girl in my class, and I found out she doesn't go to church anywhere. I'm going to invite her to church. I said, I think that would be a great idea. And so she did, and... And uh, uh, and she said, I'm going to talk to my parents about it, right? And so I don't know what, where that conversation went because we're in a new class now and we don't get to see that girl uh, every year now but or every day now. But like this was an important thing to pull back the curtain, right? Because my daughter was ignoring, even without knowing it, she was ignoring the darkness of the world. However, I find myself on the opposite end of that. I don't, I don't, I, my natural tendency is to be overwhelmed at the darkness in the world around us. And to think, I can't do anything about that. Could not. You see, have y'all seen what's going on around us? Like, what in the world are we, how can I do anything to impact that? And just get overwhelmed. But listen, what I, what I want us to see from the text, you are the light of the world. What Jesus is pushing here is an urgency. He's helping them see that actually to understand you are the light of the world, you need to recognize how dark it is. You need to recognize the darkness because that's going to put more emphasis on the light that we are. 
This is an important thing for us to understand. Until we acknowledge the urgency of the situation that we are in, that the world is broken and dark, we will not take up the mantle of being light. But there's something else wrapped up in this term. You are the light of the world. Jesus is helping us see that there is actually an answer to this darkness. Not just that it exists and that it's heavy, but that there's an answer. We talked about this on week one, so I'm not going to go deep here. But Jesus was certainly drawing attention to the darkness of the world, but he was pointing to the answer for that darkness, which was what? Starts with an L, rhymes with a right. Light. Okay, you're with me. The answer was light, but in this, if you, it'll be less awkward if you just answer. Who did Jesus say the light was? His followers, right? That's what, it, this is so important for you to grasp. We're going to talk about a moment here in a second where Jesus talked about himself, but what does Jesus say here? What pronoun, English teachers? You are the light of the world, he said. That you, you have in you, what is in you is what the world needs. Yes, the world is broken and dark and it needs a light to brighten the path, and it's you, Jesus says. And we can bring that from 2,000 years ago to 2022, and now I, not Jesus, can stand before you and say, we are the light of the world. Just change the pronoun. We are the light of the world. We are the answer that the world needs. And what's interesting, as I said, uh, Jesus, this is not the only time Jesus uses this analogy. John eight twelve, Jesus says this, and this is weird. Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have a lot of life. So Jesus seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth here, Right? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And in another place, he says, I am the light of the world. Well, Jesus, I need to know, which pronoun is it? I are you? I are we? Which is it, right? What does Jesus say about himself? He says, I am the light of the world. But what does he say about us? Whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You see this? Jesus is himself the light that the world needs. But what he says here in John eight twelve is that he grants that light to his followers. The way that we talk to this about our to our kids is that Jesus comes to live in you, which is like a biblical thing, not a cutesy thing. <laughs> that that Jesus comes to live in us through the Spirit of God, and then through that indwelling through Jesus being in me, his light shines out to me. That's why Jesus can say, I am the light of the world and you are the light of the world. If you follow me, it's an important to make a distinction here between these two truths. So there's this urgency that's embedded in this declaration. And there's this, this clear answer that Jesus has given. But the second analogy is just, just really cool. Matthew 5, 14 says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. So if you're, if you're a note taker, that's point number two. You are a city on a hill. A city on a hill. This is kind of a foreign concept for us today. Because when I say city, you think of what? Name a city. New York. Sheesh. Okay, I didn't have <laughs> stats for that. Um, I was thinking Huntsville, Eden. Um, so... After the service is over, you can Google that. But what I know is that Huntsville is spread out over 220 square miles. City of Huntsville, 220 square miles. Athens, Athens, the city of Athens is 40 square miles. So a lot smaller, right? 
But ancient cities were so much smaller than that. Like even one of the, the biggest, probably the biggest ancient city to ever exist, the city of Rome, which came to its peak about 150 years after Jesus, was only 16 square miles. And that was massive in the ancient world. Most of the cities that you look at uh, were just a few acres. They were literally like, one of them I looked up, I was like, oh, that one was probably one of the biggest ones. I think it was Corinth. I can't remember now because I'm going to talk about Corinth here in a second. But it was not even one hundredth of a square mile. It was point zero zero nine square miles. <laughs> like, so I had to pull out a math book and figure out what that was called. Um, so less than a hundredth. All right. But... These cities, these cities, they were really, really small, only a few acres, but they were scattered all over the known world, yet they were strategically located, okay? The largest cities would have been along the trading routes, and they would have been near ports. They would have been, that would have been the places where a lot of people came, and they were often on high places. Listen to me. They were often on high places. Corinth, which is one that uh, that uh, is significant in the first century. It was a place of significance, uh, like for trade. But it was also a place of significance in the Bible because that's where Paul goes. In one of Paul's journeys, Paul travels to Corinth and, and, and he plants a church there. And then he writes at least two letters to him, two, we have two, um, in the New Testament. And, and Corinth was a city that was set on a hill. It was near, uh, it was near a shore. Um, actually the Gulf of Corinth is what it was called. It was near the water, but it was built up 300 feet or so above sea level. And so think about that. Think about, can you imagine like, as you're I don't know, riding in a ship, right, through the Gulf of Corinth, and you look, sailing a ship, thanks, Kai. I'm reading lips. I can read lips, Kai. Kai sailing a ship. That's the word he's looking for. Um, but sailing a ship is what I was looking for. Um, as you're sailing this ship through the Gulf of Corinth, and you look to the shore, right, like you're going to see this city set on a hill, and the city is going to be lit up, not with electricity, but with torches everywhere, because that's that's that was important, and so if you're riding, if you're if you're if you're uh, sailing in the Gulf, or if you're heading west on the trade route from Athens, Greece, uh, through Corinth, that's what you're going to see is this city set up on a hill, and so that's the image. Like Jesus didn't have to create this image for us or for his early disciples. Maybe he does. Maybe we have to talk about it a little bit more. Do y'all remember? Here's the best analogy I can have. Do y'all remember when Madison didn't exist? Like that stretch of 72 between Athens and Huntsville, like there was nothing. It was fields. And then that last little hill that you used to climb that, that dumped you there now at the super target. Like that was the start of Huntsville. And I can remember like as you're getting closer, you're driving through these dark cornfields and like, oh, there's a little bit of light. Now, not a perfect example because it's not darkness like what was going on here. But but that's that's the best analogy I could think of. And so Jesus is using this image of cities set on a hill to drive home some incredible points for his, his followers. The first one is this, um, underneath that point, city on a hill is elevated, not hidden. Jesus wanted his followers to know that there is no place for hiding as a follower of Jesus. We're not to seclude ourselves from the culture around us. We were to be, we were to be a city set up on a hill. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus' followers struggled with that very thing. <laughs> you read the book of Acts. You know where they are when Acts opens, like open scene. You know where they are? Hiding. Like that's literally, well, I guess they meet Jesus first. But after Jesus ascends back into heaven, at the end of first chapter of Acts, they're hiding behind locked doors. 
You know what Jesus does? God our Father sends his spirit. And the spirit of God rests on those believers and empowers them to go out. And what happens is they go on for a little bit and, and the church in Jerusalem is growing, but God's Jesus' challenge to them was to go and make disciples of all nations. But guess what they're doing? They're staying holed up in Jerusalem. You know what God does? God allows persecution to come on the church that drives them out of Jerusalem. You stay in Jerusalem, you're probably going to die. So the church begins to spread. And you see it all throughout Scripture, and we've seen it all throughout human history. When God's people shut ourselves in and build a wall and shut, like close it all off, guess what happens? God forces his way in and pulls us out. That's what he does. This is the routine. When we seclude ourselves, God finds a way to drive us back out into the culture. And nothing has changed. God is, listen to this, God is still not pleased when you live a life of separation. We cannot be a city on a hill and hiding in the cave. We can't. Christ has called his followers to live a life of impacting others, and we can't do it while hiding and trying to protect ourselves from the outside world. And so all this has been stomping on my toes. So let's get to something encouraging. So this is good. <laughs> Sub point here. City on a hill is not many. It's many, not one. Sorry. City on a hill is, is many, not one. If it, if it causes you anxiety to think about living your life in the world for the sake of the gospel, sharing your faith, if all that gives you a little bit of anxiety, that's okay. You should take heart that you're not in this alone. You see, it's hard for us to see in our culture today this, this idea because we're so self-centered in many aspects of our life. Did you know that even the church has been self-centered in my lifetime? I'm going to give you a perfect example. How were you trained to read the Bible? What was the first question you were asked, where you were taught, if you were raised in church anyway? It's the first question you were taught after you read a passage of Scripture. For me, the question I was taught was, what does this mean for me? Right? That was what I was taught. You read a passage of Scripture and you ask, God the, you ask the question, what does this mean for me? Y'all, that's so self-centered. Like, it, it's driving everything that we do. Like, it, it's always about us. And, G, and it's, in, it's, it, it's it permeated our culture. We forget that Jesus was speaking to a group of people when he said, you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. He didn't say, each one of you are lights of the, in the world. Not, not, a, not, a, not each one of you is a person on a hill. He used the term city. A city to the ancients represented more than a place. It wasn't buildings. It wasn't streets. It was people. So when Jesus says, you are a city set on a hill, he's speaking of the collective group of followers. So you need to know that when you're, when you're doing your best to live your life in such a way to stand out from the world, you're not alone. And here's the deal. I, so Halloween tomorrow, right? Um, I went to a haunted house one time. Last two words, what were they? One time. Y'all can have that stuff. It ain't for me, okay? Uh, life is scary enough. I don't need people jumping out at me. 
But I went to this one haunted house out in West Limestone, uh, which is where we're going to be for Church on the Road. They've had two haunted houses out there. I joked in the first service, that's why we're going out there, because when you got two haunted houses in a small community, Matt, you need, you need to go out there and tell them about Jesus. I'm joking about that. Um, but this was not the haunted hospital, if you're familiar. It was the house, when they had the house that was haunted. And so me and my best friend and his brother and their cousin went. So we, we were in middle school or late elementary school, I don't remember. So he was driving us, uh, the brother was. And so we go out to West Limestone. And I don't know what it is about these haunted houses. Like, why can't we just wait in line to go in? Why do we have to put a scary movie on TVs with loud music outside? Like, we already have to get all worked up before we go in. So Halloween or something is playing up here on the TV. And uh, I'm trying to not pay attention to it. I'm trying to just laugh and have a good time. Now, here's the deal. When I walked in, I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been in a haunted house. I actually realized it wasn't too scary. Like, there were times where I laughed. I'm not going to tell you because it's gross. But there were things going on in there. I was like, no, that's funny. Like, that, that made me laugh. But there was a moment where it got really dark like physically dark, like all the lights were off. And you don't know if you're in a large room or a hallway. But I was, I was with my people, right? And so I felt some peace in that, right? And then it's really, really dark, but you can kind of, all you can see is gradients of black. And out of the left corner of my eye, it goes from kind of black to really black, which if you're not familiar, that means much deeper darkness, right? So what had happened was a little piece of the wall had slidden back. And I'm sitting there, and I see it out of the corner of my eye, and I hear, and I hear a chainsaw rev up from inside the wall. Like, I don't even know how he was in there. And then he sticks it to my leg, which, again, I didn't know. I felt for blood. Like, I thought I'm dying. Like, I thought, this is it. I'm, I'm fixing to die. And so in that moment, like I'm feeling for blood and I'm remembering the thing when you came in, they said, don't hit. Like you can't, as a person that's coming in, being scared, you're not supposed to punch them. That's a rule. So I was fighting the urge and he quickly realized he's not liking it. So he went on to somebody else. And in that moment, like the scary level went up a little bit. But remember, I'm still with my people. And so I'm like, okay, there's no chain on it. Your, your leg's still there. And then I, but hold on, hang on, this is all going somewhere. If you're not a haunted house person and you're not liking this, hang on. In this moment, I reached up and I, I grabbed for my, my, my best friend's brother who, who is right in front of me. Cause I'm like, okay, remember, it's, the scary level's rising. I reach up and I grab his shirt and he turns around and it ain't Kyle. <laughs> and I look over to my right and there's a lady there. Like has her four year old kid for some reason, and I'm like, and so in that moment, was anything scarier? There were no more chainsaws. Nothing changed except I was alone. So this thing that wasn't too scary, it was kind of funny, went way up here on the fear level. And so one of the things I'm learning about the Christian life as I pastor and as I talk with people is that oftentimes when we think of something as being scary or we're, we're unprepared for or we feel ill-equipped to do something that God has called us to do, it most often comes from the fact that we think we're alone. And the scary level of something that's not too scary, just follow Jesus and tell people about him, should be this scary. But we think we're alone And so it quickly jumps way up here. 
So what I think Jesus is getting across when he says you are a city on a hill, this Christian life of standing out from the world and sharing it with other people and, 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 and being willing to get out among the darkness to share the light of Christ. It should not be as scary. It's still going to be scary because it's darkness, but it should not be as scary because we're not alone. We're in this together. And Jesus goes on to give the last final analogy, which is really cool too. He says, "You're a lamp on a stand." And this is a good. Let me read. Uh, let me read Matthew 15. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Now, first off, lights a lamp. You know how I light lamps? I turn that little black thing twice. Once it clicks twice, the light comes on. Right. But I don't, surely I don't have to go into uh, 2,000 years ago when this was originally written. We're not talking about a lamp that plugs into the wall. Um, my great-grandmother had an oil lamp that we carried down into her, uh, her, uh, her storm shelter when, it was, when we had a risk of tornado. Probably not good for carbon monoxide poisoning, but we would carry that lamp. And it had that, it had that, uh, that uh, wick that you could run up and run down, um, and it had oil in it. And that's, that was... That was and it's not exactly that, right? Because that's not 2,000 years old. But that's what we're talking about. Candles, lamps, like oil lamps. That's what's going on here. That's how they would light their house. And so this analogy of being a lamp that's on a lampstand is, is, uh, is, is giving us, again, two principles. The first is that we've got to be available, not absent. So they would light that oil lamp and place it strategically in the room. It would be on a high table or a shelf in the house so that the glow of the flame would light the whole house. You didn't shove it in the corner behind the couch. But like you didn't do, you put it somewhere strategic. And Jesus says, what good would it be to have this awesome light source giving everyone in the house the ability to see in the dark yet cover it with a basket. What does that accomplish? The flame is there, but nobody can see it. It's not benefiting anyone. Now, I'm going to be straight with you. This is my least favorite of the three analogies because it stings more than the others to me. God spoke to me more in this, and I didn't like that. <laughs> Because we've already established that if we are believers in Jesus, Jesus has already said, you are the light of the world. We carry Christ's light to those who are in darkness. And so if people are not seeing the light in me, what does this analogy tell us is causing it? It's a basket. You see this? We used to play a game called... Uh, Sardines. Anybody know what sardines is? There's a few of you. Okay, here we go. I got to go into a little bit more detail since not a lot of you know. Uh, sardines was a fun youth group game. Uh, you had to be very strategic and you had to choose two same gendered people to go hide because you're a good youth pastor. Right? Okay. Um, but you would send two, you would send two or three uh, girls or two or three guys and you would send them out into the whole church. Um, and I was at a more of like an established church that had tons of rooms and closets and all this stuff. You just send them out in the whole church. Say, go hide somewhere, anywhere. And so like they would hide in closets. They would hide underneath sinks. We broke a water line playing sardines one time at my first church. It was awesome. 
But like we, they would hide in closets, cabinets, all this stuff. And then one, we would give them about five to six minutes. And then me as the leader would go through and cut all the lights off in the entire church. Every light. And like this was when I was in West Limestone. There weren't a lot of street lights where we were. It was dark, y'all. Creepy dark. So we cut all the lights off. And then we tell everybody, go find them. And they have to just go find them. And so they're walking around like you go into a room, right? And what do you do? You just start on the right wall. And you just kick every once in a while. Because like, you don't know. You don't know where anybody is. But here's the thing. When you found them, this was the coolest part of sardines. You didn't yell. You didn't, you didn't like, the game wasn't over. You just sat down with them. This is the creepiest part of sardines. You just quietly sit down with them. If they were inside a cabinet, you sat beside the cabinet. And over time, like, people just go missing. Like, you're walking the halls and you're like, where? I'm the last one to find them. Like, that was me on more than one occasion. But the, 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 the thing was, like, we only had two rules on it. Don't use your cell phone flashlight and don't turn a light on. Now, teenagers always think they're smarter than adults. And if you're a teenager in the room, we, we know you think you're smarter uh, because you can, like, do algebra, but whatever. Um, we could at one time too. Um, but the one thing I, I rem- is they would always try to cheat. Every single game, they would always try to cheat. And the way that they would do it was always my favorite. And when you're in a pitch dark room, and let's say it's a hundred yard hallway. We, our church wasn't that big. The, the room that they're in is a hundred yards away. If they flick the light on really, really fast, do I see it? Yes, they are adults. You know that. They think for somehow like the, the, the speed of light is not fast enough. If they can flick it really fast, it's not going to make it that way down the hallway to me. Or they would use their cell phone and walk around, but like, like shut the door. Well, like I can see it coming. Like even again, if I'm a hundred yards away, I can see the light coming out the door. I know you're cheating. And so we always had to bust them um, on that and make them sit out. But, um, but it was always funny to watch them. But here's the deal. Here, here, here's, Here's the thing. In darkness, light can't help but be seen, right? In darkness, light can't help but be seen. Listen, the same is true in the spiritual world. I talked to some people who who have told me things like, man, I feel like my light's getting, I feel like my light's dimmer than it used to be. I feel like my light's gone out. How do I get my light to come back on? Spiritually, but like you need to know that's not the case. It's not the case. You see, it's not the responsibility of the Christian to figure out how to turn their light on or off or to keep it from dimming. You simply have to stop hiding it. That's an important distinction. Our light is not dependent on our relationship with God Like the brightness of our light is not dependent on our relationship with God because our light source is Christ. He never dims. He never goes away. He never turns on and off. He is always shining through us. The visibility of our light, however, is most certainly up to us. It's not that it dims. It's not that it goes off. It's that we hide it. And we hide it under unconfessed sin. The basket of unconfessed sin. We hide it. Uh, with the basket of living a reclusive lifestyle. We hide it through the basket of busyness. And if others are not seeing your light, stop asking God questions and start asking yourself questions. 
If others are not seeing your life, that means that your light has been covered with some kind of basket. And my mother-in-law used to have a lot of these longer burger baskets. But she sold them in the yard sale. So I wanted to have a really cool like visual, but she sold all of her longer burger baskets. You know about longer burger baskets? Okay, anyway. Being available, being available to others in our life is a, as I already said, ridiculously important part of our everyday mission. It's possible to have the light of Christ, the light of the world, and others not see that in us. Even when we're living right around them. Because our light is being masked by several things in our life. And so we need to acknowledge what those baskets are. You need to start asking yourself the question, what baskets am I hiding my light with? And chunk those suckers. Put them in the yard cell. Get rid of those things. And let your light shine. Jesus says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The catch at the end that we don't always think about is we think, oh, live your life in good works, which is really cool. Like, don't be a jerk. Do nice things for other people. Like, help people when they're in need. Those are things you're supposed to do. But Jesus says here that when we do these things, when we show, when we, when we do these good deeds, he says that God gets glory. That's an important distinction that Jesus doesn't address here, but you gotta figure out. Because there's a lot of good people in the world who are doing good deeds. But they're not following Jesus. So what's the distinctive for us? You and I, if we're gonna do good things, if we're gonna, we're gonna, we're going to do we're going to try to live this life we've got to make the connection for people we've got to live our lives in such a way that they know why we do good things why we help other people why we aren't jerks at some point in the relationship with the people around us we've got to mention god church jesus faith the bible prayer something to let them know why we do what we do and this is the last point i promise we got to be inviting not silent This is the last and hard step of this process. Everything we've been talking about for the last three weeks leading to this point. Open your mouth and then offer an invitation. It goes back to the second analogy too. A city on a hilltop would have been a beacon to those sailing in the gulf. It would have been a beacon, a signal of life ahead. Imagine you were mauled by a bear outside the city limits of Corinth. Like your first thing is going to be get to Corinth because that's where I can find help. And imagine you're in the darkness of the wilderness between cities and you're dragging your leg or whatever, but you can see, right? What you can, what you can use, what can you see ahead of you? A city on a hill that's lit up. What, what, like, what does that light represent? It represents hope and peace. If I can just get there, I can get the help that I need. But here's what you need to know. Like for that person who's mauled by a bear outside Corinth, darkness is the enemy, right? They're going to lie out there and die because they don't have help. Darkness is the enemy. And here's what you need to know. Not everyone wants the light. There are some living in darkness today that do not want the light that we have. They enjoy the darkness. And they fall into two, I think, two, two types of people. The only time I like light, or the only time I like darkness in my life is when I was sleeping. Amen. And when I was up to no good. And it's the truth. The same thing spiritually. 
There are some people that are just spiritually sleeping. They think that the life that they're leading is good. They're thinking that everything's on track. But what they're not recognizing is that they are they're sleeping spiritually. And there's others who are up to no good and they're running from God. Now listen, you need to know you're going to come across some people who do not welcome the light. They are not interested in what we have. They're content in the darkness. They may even resist your invitations or be ugly about it. But people, which we need to, what we've got to acknowledge is that there are people who are searching. Searching for something. And they desire the light. They need to see it. And to these people, the light is inviting. There are people in our world who are searching. They're thinking about their own mortality. They've just gotten bad medical news. Or they've just come to the realization that the world is not fulfilling their deepest desires. Whatever the case, these are the people who are searching. And when they see the hope of the gospel and the light of Jesus Christ, it will be a welcomed light. This is the simplicity, that, as simple as I can give it to you guys. Our job is to find them. To leave this place today as mobile lights to the world and go find those who are searching. Not to argue and to fight with those who are sleeping. Let me share with them. But like, don't get so consumed with that because there are still people in your life who are searching. Find them, share with them the hope that you have. The mistake churches have been making is by thinking that there's something magical about this place. And there was a time, maybe it was when my parents were young, when people were hurting, they came to church, even if they didn't know God. Y'all, those days are in the past. The last three generations to be born on this earth do not trust establishments or organizations or leaders of those people, including pastors, naturally. And so what that means is that when their life is falling apart, they very well may not come in this place. They'll go anywhere else. And so we can, we can act as if putting a steeple up here means, oh, everyone come. It's probably not going to happen. We have to go out to them. Our buildings are not the light of the world. Our worship service, as awesome as it is, is not the light of the world. Our programs, our events, our church calendar is not the light of the world. Do you remember the quote from Jesus? You are the light of the world. It's what we've been called to do. It's what Jesus did. Went out into the dark places to bring people into the light. Three different invitations that you may need to offer to people in your life. First is invite them in, invite people to you. If you got a new neighbor, you may want to be careful. Like don't show up and, you know, pound the gospel over their head first. You may just want to invite them to your house for supper first. Maybe someone who you know that's hurting and needs a friend. Again, the first step may be just inviting them into you, into your life, into your rhythm. Spend time with them as a friend first. Or the other invitation may be to invite people to church. There are going to be some people in your path that a good step is to say, hey man, why don't you come to church with me this Sunday? Like what, maybe for some of them they're lacking community or they're lacking some accountability or they just need a place to breathe for a minute. Some of you came to church for that reason. Life was just kind of crazy and somebody said, why don't you come with me and breathe? Just, just take a breath. Here's what you need to know. Like we have these invite cards at Next Steps um, and they're there for a reason. Um, it says join us for worship Sundays at 9 and 1045 is a spot we intentionally left for you to write your name and phone number. You can give these out to your friends and neighbors. Keep some in the car with you. 
But invite people to church. But the last thing is this, the third step. Invite people to Jesus. There are going to be other people that you encounter who are searching. And it is clear that, yes, they need a friend. Yes, they need to come to church. But they may be ready in that moment to know and to hear about Jesus. That God created us to be in a perfect relationship with him, but our sin messed that up. And then Jesus was sent to live the perfect life that we couldn't and die the death that we deserved. And that after his death, he was raised up on the third day so that we could have life. And that if we would trust in the name of Jesus and turn from our sin, we could be saved and have a have the relationship with God that he intended from the very beginning. That's the truth of the gospel. However you share it, that's what we need to share. We've actually, I feel like I'm selling stuff up here. Oh, okay. Three easy payments. Um, but like this is a tool that we just built in English and Spanish. Uh, Miss Kathy Gifford helped us with the Spanish version, translating that into Spanish. Super cool. But it's just a simple good news thing. It walks through our brokenness. You can give it to them. It's got our church information on the back, all three canvases of Lindsay Lane. It's got a QR code that carries them to a video where they listen to me and Andy, John, and Alan share the things that are already in here and give them an opportunity to respond and let us know. It's a really, really cool, simple tool. If you're like, Heath, I can't, I'm not ready to share. I can't do that. We can hand them something and ask them to read it. These are available at Next Steps too. But we want to give you an opportunity just to, to wrestle with what we've talked about. We've laid out this process over the last three weeks. Identify the people in our lives who don't know Jesus. Identify the people in our lives who don't know Jesus. Maybe people in the background we need to slow down enough to know that them. We need to begin to invest in them. So the second week, we need to, we, they need to know that we care. We need to live our lives in such a way that they want what we have. But our work of evangelism is not done. Our everyday mission is not done until we invite them into our life, into our church, or invite them to Jesus. Whatever the case, we must invite. Today, I want to give you an opportunity, as I've already said, just to kind of Sit for a minute in what we've talked about and to ask yourself the hard questions of where am I in this process? We're going to spend some time praying. I'm going to be at the back. I want to pray for those who are searching around you. Pray for those. Uh, pray for courage to share with those or, or pray for that God would use us to reach them. And, and if you're one of those who is searching today uh, for hope, um, I'd love to share that with you. I'll be at the back. If you need me, I'm back there. I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to lead us in, in one more song. Father God, we thank you.